welcome to the inaugural podcast of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. I'm Jeff Wertheim. Today, we'll be discussing last week's Supreme Court oral arguments on same-sex marriage. The first case, heard on Tuesday, was Perry against Hollingsworth, which asked whether California may deny same-sex couples the right to marriage under the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses of the U.S. Constitution. Or, as Justice Scalia wanted to know, When did it become unconstitutional to prohibit gays from marrying? The other case the court heard was United States against Windsor. That case challenged the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, the federal law which denies federal marriage benefits to same-sex couples who are married under the law of their home states. Here's how Justice Ginsburg laid out DOMA's implication for states, like New York, that do recognize marriage equality. You're saying, no, state, there are two kinds of marriages, the full marriage and then the sort of skim-milk marriage. (laughs) In the first half of this podcast, we'll hear from Jennifer C. Pizer, who is the Senior Counsel and Director of the Project on Law and Policy at Lambda Legal. Next, we'll hear from Professor Dean Spade, who is an Associate Professor at the Seattle University School of Law, a current Fellow at Columbia Law School, and founder of the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, a nonprofit law collective that provides free legal services to transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people who are low-income and or people of color. Professor Spade offers critiques of the marriage equality movement for us to consider moving forward. It's uh, great to be with you. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, I know that there's been a lot of media analysis of both the Perry and the Windsor cases. Um, I'd like to go through both of them with you. But first, I guess one question I have is just what does it say that the parties who would have standing in these two cases, the Department of Justice in the DOMA case and the California government in Prop 8, what does it mean that they refuse to defend these laws? Yes, I I think that the similarity of some of these procedural questions in both cases before the court at the same moment um, are dramatic evidence of the interesting moment in time that we're witnessing and that we are uh, not just witnessing but participating in. that there has been uh, such a a strong, firm recognition by elected officials who represent great parts of our population uh, that these laws discriminate in ways that are not defensible. Because those officials are refusing to defend the laws, other groups have been called in. The proponents of Proposition 8 in the case of Perry, and in the case of Windsor, the congressional Republicans operating through the Bipartisan Legal Advisory Council. A key question in both cases was whether these groups were the right parties before the Supreme Court, or rather whether they had standing under Article 3 of the Constitution. Ms. Pizer said it would be frustrating to those in the movement if the court were to decide either of the cases on those grounds. The bottom line here is that is that um, those of us who have had the, the privilege of going to law school and have studied federal jurisdiction uh, and the rules of, of federal litigation know that these are courts of limited jurisdiction. And repeatedly in our American history, there have been legal problems uh, that the federal courts have declined to answer, deciding that a problem is is a political problem or perhaps not right for an answer or uh, for prudential reasons the court should uh, should not participate and give an answer to the question. Often those moments are profoundly frustrating to the people that are affected. Another important question throughout this litigation has been whether marriage equality is a right that must be recognized by the court, or whether it's a social issue that should be decided by the democratic process in different states. In Perry against Hollingsworth, 
Some of the justices were concerned that a ruling would stifle democratic debate. Ms. Paisa raised one point which Justice Alito alluded to. Here's Justice Alito during the arguments. But you want us to step in and render a decision based on an assessment of the effects of this institution which is newer than cell phones or the Internet? I mean, we're, we are not — we do not have the ability to see the future. On a question like that, of such fundamental importance, why should it not be left for the people, either acting through initiatives and referendums or through their elected public officials? It has been said that um, this issue should just be taken back, back to the people for another initiative vote. And, of course, that option does exist. But the point of the Equal Protection Guarantee is that minority groups should not be left only to the popularity contests of majoritarian votes to, to um, be entitled to equal treatment under the law. In hearing the merits of the case, many members of the court expressed a concern with issuing a decision that would create a constitutional right to same-sex marriage without more social science data. Ms. Pizer also spoke with us about the following quote from Justice Scalia. They're arguing for a nationwide rule which applies to states other than California, that every state must allow marriage by same-sex couples. And so even those states that believe it is harmful, and I take no position on whether it's harmful or not, but it is certainly true that, uh, that, that there's no scientific answer to that question at this point in time. So this is a very important passage, and, and a number of the justices returned to this idea repeatedly uh, that social science, I should say that the verdict does not get in from the social scientists. First of all, the, the social science research uh, uh, concerning uh, child development and what is important in quality of parenting um, and, and environment for child development, um, that is, a, a, in fact, an immensely well-developed field. There's an enormous amount of evidence that leads the experts who actually work in this field uh, to have concluded some time ago and with great, um, uh, with great emphasis that what matters to children is not the gender or the sexual orientation of parents, uh, but the quality of parenting. The point is these are basic rights of, of persons. We, we do not have to prove uh, our uh, competence to exercise them. At the same time, the reason that these, that the expert witnesses um, can be very powerful additions to uh, a, a trial like the Terry trial or a case like Lambda Legal's Iowa uh, marriage case, the Barnum case, going back to the, the first marriage trial in, in Hawaii back in 1996, which focused on expert witnesses about, um, about uh, child development, um, that, that the LGBT community has long been significantly invisible to our society. Um, lesbians have been raising children that were born into heterosexual marriages for many decades. It is newer that, that gay men uh, have the opportunity to have children together as a couple to adopt or have children in various ways together. That's newer. But gay men have certainly been raising their own biological children, the children born in heterosexual relationships for, for ages, but they've been largely invisible. So in these cases, we um, sometimes must educate uh, the court about things that are patently obvious to some of us, 
but that um, that others have not had the opportunity to learn. The point there should be that that is education. It's, it ought not to be a threshold that we must surmount in order to enjoy basic rights that others are guaranteed without question. Given all of the substantive and procedural issues that are mixed up in these two cases, what's your prediction for what we're going to see this summer when the decisions presumably come out in June or so? So one of the one of the cardinal rules uh, when uh, court watching and, and when doing appellate arguing, of course, is to not uh, assume we know what's going to happen based on the questions. My best guess at this point uh, from the questions, it did seem as though um, there may well be five votes in the Perry case, the Hollingsworth, the, the Perry case, um, that there was not standing um, on the part of the initiative proponents to appeal the case following Judge Walker's decision to the Ninth Circuit and then again to seek cert in the Supreme Court. What that means for California, people are, are having some different views on, but to, but my my best understanding of this is that Judge Walker's order was binding against uh, California officials in charge of the apparatus that includes the issuance of marriage licenses and, and that, that whole regulation of marriage. And so uh, they ought to be understood to be bound to no longer enforce Prop 8 at whatever point. If that's, if that's the decision from the U.S. Supreme Court, that would mean that marriage would again be available to same-sex couples in California. In terms of Windsor, uh, my best crystal ball suggests that Justice Kennedy thinks that DOMA is is defective, um, and that the, that the questions from the other justices also seem to indicate that there are five votes for striking down DOMA. Uh, some different uh, theories of it, uh, and and a little bit of uh, indication from Justice Sotomayor in particular that she might be interested in writing something, possibly a concurring opinion about heightened scrutiny. Um, but but uh, my best guess is that we see a decision striking DOMA down on rational basis grounds, but with some discussion of the federalism problems being part of the mix there, and uh, and that DOMA does not survive um, the Windsor case uh, and and would open the door for equal treatment of married and lesbian couples in this country, also would open the door at that point to a great uh, new chapter of complicated legal questions about what what equal treatment means. Jenny Pizer of Lambda Legal, thank you so much for being a part of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change's first ever podcast. Um, we really appreciate you joining us. Well, as a former uh, alum of NYU Law School and the Review of Law and Social Change in particular, it was a great privilege and uh, a delight to be part of this. who spoke with us about some of the themes advanced by both sides in the oral arguments and how they relate to his critiques of the marriage equality movement. Dean Spade, thank you so much for being a part of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change's first ever podcast. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. One of the first items we discussed was the beginning of the argument for the opponents of Proposition 8. Here's Ted Olson at the start of his Perry argument. I thought that it would be important for this court to have Proposition 8 put in context what it does. It walls off gay and lesbians from marriage 
the most important relation in life, according to this Court, thus stigmatizing a class of Californians based upon their status and labeling their most cherished relationships as second-rate, different, unequal, and not okay. So I'm curious as what your reaction is to the Ted Olson started argument off that way. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of us, um, one of the things most disturbing about the same-sex marriage advocacy is the way that all of these talking points that are clearly anti-feminist talking points become pro-same-sex marriage talking points, and that slippage is concerning. So to say that um, the most important relationship people can have is marriage um, is, you know, just really flies in the face of uh, all the work that feminists have done over such a long period of time to question marriage, to see marriage as a form of social control, to free it from a kind of romantic notion that it's just about how we love each other and to actually see it as like a form of economic regulation, a form of labor regulation, um, something that regulates um, racial categories. I think that there's... uh, something that I agree with you is very conservative about that. Um, And then also it's so funny because marriage itself and its legal existence um, ensures that a bunch of people will have their relationships not recognized. So the thing that he's so concerned about, um, the the wording you just mentioned, um, that his concern that uh, a bunch of Californians will be stigmatized based on their status and their most cherished relationships will be labeled a second rate is exactly what marriage does. Right, that's what right. the institution of marriage engages Right, the institution of marriage establishes that some relationships are good and proper and should be recognized by the state, and others um, should not be. Right, and so the so the notion that it's an issue of equality, I've always thought it was funny that the term marriage equality is a term that's emerged in this advocacy because marriage is about inequality. It's about establishing um, really uh, severe inequality between those who organize their life in the way that the state has determined to be the most meaningful, important, right-on way, and those who do not. We also discussed a later point in the argument, which seemed to show Justice Kennedy's understanding of the principal harm of bans on same-sex marriage. On the other hand, there is an immediate legal injury, or legal, uh, what could be a legal injury, And that's the voice of these children. There are some 40,000 children in California, according to the Red Brief, uh, that live uh, with same-sex parents. And they want their parents to have full recognition and full status. The voice of those children is important in this case, don't you think? It just seems strange that children of these couples are, like, the major concern and not the... I mean, I think children are concerned, but the rights-holding adults seem like they should matter a lot, too. Mm-hmm. So this whole framework around, like, it being bad for people to not be married or bad for their children for them not to be married is just, you know, really frightening. and has all these alignments with um, anti-feminist and racist um, frameworks in the U.S. And I think the other thing is, again, like, if we, you know, if we really look at the children of um, queer people in California... Lots of them, their parents, even if they were to get married to each other, still nobody has immigration status, still nobody has health care status, right? The notion that people are mostly going to get more benefits if they are able to get married or get more pathways to immigration doesn't really make sense when so many people, neither partner or nobody they know who they can marry has it, because that's the way it is. There's a sort of concentrated dispossession in certain communities, um, and that and who you know is who usually, usually might be a possibility to make a legal connection with. And also, if, I mean, I really think that if the number one concern of LGBT advocates um, was the children of people of California, 
we would start with a different issue, right? Like we would start with um, the way that California is one of the most imprisoning jurisdictions in the world, and how does that impact the children of people who are imprisoned? Or we'd start with children inside California's youth prisons, and and we would look at um, the children of people, um, you know, facing poverty, and we look at the enormous amount of. Um, of homeless uh, LGBTs. There's so many other directions, so it feels very simultaneously conservative and also, um, you know, like a false trotting out of concern for children when there's so many other ways to think about how to meaningfully benefit uh, children who are affected by homophobia, transphobia, poverty, racism, etc. But towards the end of Ted Olson's argument, he quoted the VMI case. The language that Justice Ginsburg used at the closing of the VMI case is an important thing. It resonates with me. A prime part of the history of our Constitution is the story of the extension of constitutional rights to people once ignored or excluded. Who is he talking about there? And is he applying that logic in the best way for, you know, sort of as a social, is it the most socially appropriate or most beneficial way? I would agree with Ted Olson that the story the United States tells about itself and tells about its constitution is that people who were excluded become included in rights. And I think one of the big things that uh, social movements do is question that story, right? So one of the big stories in the United States is that um, anti-black racism, slavery, and Jim Crow were resolved by uh, constitutional changes and, um, and other sort of legal reform frameworks and, and interpretations of the Constitution. And I think this story, this idea that the United States is post-racist or post-anti-black racism is very central to conservative anti-black politics today, right, and to maintaining a system of apartheid in the United States, right, which does not operate in the exact same ways it operated under Jim Crow, um, but operates nonetheless if you look at sort of the, um, the intense segregation of schooling in the United States, of who has resources, who has housing, who has health care, all of these things, you see that, that that has not been resolved at all, but that the story that it has been resolved by law is really central, and you can see that story also being told about disability, about, um, you know, sexism and whether or not women have access. You can see that so many um, constituencies who have complaints against a system in the United States that's fundamentally um, oppressive and harmful uh, have been told that they have gotten their rights, and people mimic that back. So when people say, are LGBT people next, there's an assumption that these other contests and, and, um, and uh, experiences have been resolved by law. And that is so disturbing, right? Because that, that basically signs on LGBT rights projects as agreeing with this incredibly conservative, racist, harmful, ableist, sexist notion that racism, ableism, and sexism ha are over. Um, and that the current conditions in which um, people of color, women, people with disabilities are intensely economically marginalized, are targets of enormous state violence, are neutral and fair and fine. Um, and so I, I agree with him that that is a story that gets told. Um, and I probably disagree with him about whether or not that story is true. Dean Spade, thank you so much for appearing on the first ever NYU Reviewable on Social Change podcast. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I second to you. Thanks. Thank you again to both Professor Spade and Ms. Pizer for joining us. For more analysis of the same-sex marriage debate, visit our website, socialchangenyu.com. We recently published 30 short pieces by some of the most exciting voices in LGBT rights, including our two guests today. You can also follow us on Twitter, at socialchangenyu, or like us on Facebook as NYU Review of Law and Social Change. That's and with an ampersand. 
Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us for future podcasts featuring clips of Supreme Court oral arguments and commentary by scholars and practitioners. This podcast was produced by the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. I'm Jeff Wertheim. The other producers on this podcast were Diana Newmark, Stas Moros, Scott Belua, Sarah Meter, Kendall Neistat, and Carson Bauscher. Thanks to them and all of the editors of the NYU Review of Law and Social Change. Our thanks also go out to Mike Hamill, who recorded the studio portions of this podcast and provided us with the music. Learn more about him at MikeHamillMusic.com.